I think that means that everybody's supposed to be quiet now. It is uh, it's so good to be back. I, I love standing up here and watching you guys do that, uh, that the way you love each other. Uh, it's a beautiful thing for me. I, it is the weirdest thing in the world, though, y'all, when, when I am watching you do that. It is almost like I had never left this place. And, uh, and I appreciate, you know, Jeff was just saying how, you know, he appreciates that I come back. Man, bro, I appreciate the fact that you have me back. Uh, you know what, that doesn't happen in a lot of places. And uh, so, but obviously, I'm no threat. <laughs> uh, for real, man, you guys, I, I, say, I feel like I need to say this every year. You guys landed on your feet when you landed Jeff Bartell. Yeah. Amen. And I think they love you, bro. It's a, it's a good sign. <laughs> All right. We're, we're on a roll. Uh, but again, it, it is just so good to be back. Uh, for those of you that are from out of town, yeah, I, I spent a, a good portion of my life here. The memories that I have of every nook and cranny in this building are just crazy. I wish you could get in my head sometimes and just see the things that I'm seeing. It's, uh, oh, yeah, a lot of history there. Uh, my life has changed a little bit since, uh, since I was here last. Uh, I was, uh, as most of you know, I, I was in Northwest Bible Church in Columbus. Uh, as of December, uh, I have transplanted, if you don't know this, uh, I, I now am at One Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia. It's a, it's a suburb of Atlanta, uh, almost... Uh, almost to Alabama, <laughs> but it's still a suburb of Atlanta, and uh, and wow, we are we're just so blessed uh, there. The, our, our pastor is a guy by the name of Billy Wood. He would have been here this week, uh, but uh, somebody paid for them to go on a cruise months and months ago, and so they they weren't able to be here, and uh, but. What I, I'm doing there, I preach 15 times uh, a year in, in that church, and I am the, the missions arm, if you will, of, of that church. Uh, Billy Wood is a, just a gracious guy. Uh, you know, when a few weeks ago we were laying out the vision for our church, and he has me do that. You know, we're talking about the mission of our church, and he has me do stuff like that. Uh, and, and so what he has allowed me to do is not get caught up in the day-to-day -day of counseling, administrating, all, everything that it, it takes uh, to, to be a pastor so that I am free to do, those of you that are on Facebook, to do some of the things like that are happening in Malawi training pastors there, uh, being a part of LFBI, uh, producing materials. And so, yeah, we're, uh, we're blessed to be uh, where we are. Uh, uh, Billy is, is somebody that w would, uh, same exact philosophy of ministry, holds to the book the same exact way that we would. And uh, so, okay. 
enough about me. Uh, let's talk about the book. Uh, and wasn't, man, wasn't that message this morning just incredible? L listen, yes, I, I, go ahead and do that. Uh, you know, d dispensationalism is a, a mouthful. And uh, I just appreciate the way that you're gifted, bro, to take a, a tough subject and find a way to make it understandable. I, I, now I know what I'm going to be preaching about this week, now that I understand dispensationalism. Uh, and I, I just kind of... Uh, but uh, let, let me just talk about the morning sessions. If, uh, if there is any way possible for you to be here for the morning sessions, I would highly encourage it. Even if you could just take the mornings off and go to work after that. Uh, Alan Shelby, uh, Dr. Bartlett, uh, man, they are, they are going to bring the goods. They are the, the technical uh, parts of dispensationalism. Uh, what Pastor Jeff has asked me to do is to take the subject of dispensationalism and go to the Bible, go to passages in the Bible where dispensationalism is obviously there and you'd be lost uh, in those places without a dispensational view of the Bible. But because we haven't yet had the morning sessions, let me, let me just talk a little bit about this thing of dispensationalism. Um, as Pastor Jeff clearly communicated this morning, it, it is, it's an approach to the Bible. But it's an approach that's been developed from the Bible. You know, when we talk about Reformed theology, when we're talking Calvinism, Listen, that is a man's invention that comes over the top of the Bible, but it's man's invention. It takes us back to Augustine and all, all of, of, of that whole thing. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, is an approach to the Bible that comes from the Bible. And, of course, the critics of dispensationalism, and there's a lot of them now, and the critics are constantly going to try to put a man's name on dispensationalism or men's names. Uh, they're always going to say something about Jay and Darby. They're going to take you to C.I. Schofield or uh, Clarence Larkin, guys like this. But it's not associated with a man. What dispensationalism is is really nothing more then approaching the Bible using the, the rules of Bible study that are clearly revealed in the Word of God. Now, dispensationalism does have a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of ramifications that go with this in terms of this affecting that and so forth. But to really boil it down, what dispensationalism is, and again, now this is just, this is just us this is not all the technical. Those guys are going to do that in the morning. But basically what dispensationalism is, is a literal approach to Scripture. In the truest sense, it begins with a belief in the preservation 
of Scripture, what we like to refer to in the Living Faith Fellowship is a faith-based approach to Scripture, meaning that we don't believe that the Bible is locked up somewhere in original languages or that it's found somewhere in original manuscripts that no man has ever laid his eyes on, but a belief that we have in our Bible, that we hold in our hands, we have the Word and words of God so that we can take it literally. And so we don't spend a lot of our time in dispensationalism, especially in our circles. We don't spend a lot of time asking what a passage means. We simply ask, what does it say? Because it means what it says. And in our preaching, we don't spend a lot of time correcting the Bible. We don't spend any time correcting the Bible. We simply preach what it says because dispensationalism is a literal approach to the Bible. And, and so we uh, approach that uh, it, it, that way because of, of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 that we spent quite a bit of time this morning looking at, where we believe that the key to a proper biblical interpretation is recognizing that God in his word has laid it out according to divisions. And so we're very careful to make a distinction in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the most obvious thing in the world. We're careful, as we learned this morning, to make a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles and the church. And we're careful to recognize that the church actually culminates, the, the, where this is all moving is to the rapture. And once the church has been raptured out, we're very careful to recognize that there will, in fact, be on this planet a tribulation period, a seven-year period where God will, in fact, fulfill his promises in the Bible to the nation of Israel. And that seven-year period will culminate with the second coming of Christ, when Christ will come out of heaven land his foot on the Mount of Olives, it will split the Mount of Olives in two, and he will establish his millennial reign. And we believe that. We, we believe that there will be a rapture, a tribulation, a second coming, and a millennium where for a literal 1,000-year period on a literal throne in a literal temple, in the literal Jerusalem, where literal people will bow their literal knees and confess with their literal mouths that Jesus Christ is the literal Lord over all the literal earth. But other than that, we don't take the Bible literally. <laughs> and so when covenant theologians or new reformed, and I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but when new reformed hipsters want to ask us, well, where are the people that believed what you believed 400 years ago? We're very quick to tell them that they were being hunted down and persecuted and tortured and martyred by the Roman Catholic Church and nobody had a copy of the Bible in their own hands and didn't have the luxury of being able to see how it was all laid out. 
That's why we don't have an incredibly long history. But my goodness, listen, once people got the word of God in their hands and began to see 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the most obvious thing in the world is that this book has been laid out dispensationally. And, and you know what's crazy, y'all? It hasn't been too many years ago. Maybe, maybe I was just living in some kind of weird bubble. But it, I used to think that every evangelical person, and when I say evangelical, I'm talking about somebody that believes we're sinners and that we're saved by grace through faith. I, I used to think that we all believed all that stuff. But, but do you understand? We are an anomaly now for believing all the junk that we just talked about. This is, listen, they are having seminars where they laugh us to scorn. I'm, I'm serious. Where they make fun of us because we think that the Bible is all this easy open package plan and it all comes out according to a chart. And, yeah, 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 yeah. and, and you know what? Most evangelicals are actually saying right now, they're saying that you can't take the Bible literally. They're saying that the church has replaced Israel, that there's no such thing as the rapture, there's no such thing as the tribulation, and there's no such thing as the millennial reign of Christ. And when they come to the book of Revelation, do you know what they say? I mean, literally with their own mouth say this. That it's apocalyptic literature. And, and so you cannot take it literally. And I, I'm, I'm saying with them, wait, you mean when it talks about 42 months and another place is 1260 days and it's getting that fine-tuned, we can't take that literally? <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. It's apocalyptic literature. And so nobody is supposed to be able to really understand it. <sighs> Excuse me, but have you ever read Revelation 1.1? It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, listen, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Okay, I'm sorry for believing in something so stupid that we could go to the book of Revelation and see that this is what's shortly going to come to pass. Okay. Wow. So, uh, I, I didn't mean to get into all of that. Um, because my job is not to work through all the ins and outs. My job is to take the Bible and, again, show how it's laid out according to a dispensational hermeneutic and so, Pastor Jeff and Dr. Bartlett and Dr. Shelby, we like to call him the Shelby Cobra. These are the, these are the technical guys, and I think I'm here for the entertainment. I, don't, I, I haven't figured out exactly what this is all about. But what I'm going to be bringing tonight and then the next three nights is what I'm calling applied dispensationalism. What I mean by that is just applying a dispensational understanding of Scripture to the Bible. 
And what I want to do tonight is I want to show you dispensationalism revealed biblically in what I would consider some supernatural ways. This is an incredible book that we're holding in our hands. Yes, we believe that we should take it literally. But as Pastor Jeff was saying this morning, with the three layers of application, we also think it's a spiritual book. And it's not just crusty, dry history. But wow, when you begin to see how God has laid this thing out, even the dispensations in a supernatural kind of way, Maybe you might differ on whether or not it's supernatural. We'll see. But the first way that I want to show you tonight is through a seemingly random Old Testament genealogy. Through a, a seemingly random Old Testament genealogy. And after you've filled that in your notes, maybe you could take your Bible and let's, let's turn to the book of Genesis because... The genealogy that I want to take you to is in Genesis chapter 5. And before you get to chapter 5, why don't you just hop into Genesis chapter 1 for a minute. And of course, uh, because of the strong teaching in this church and the people who have come, I think most of us are fully aware, though there are certainly new believers, and man, we're glad you're here. You do need this information to just help you to understand the Bible. But, but God opens the, the Bible, obviously, in chapter 1, and this is the six days of creation, what we would call the recreation. But, but on each day, he comes to the end of the day, and it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, evening and the morning, third day, blah, 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 all the way to the sixth day. Okay, And then we, that, that's in chapter 1. We come into chapter 7, and if you'll look in the first few verses there, that God breaks his pattern. After six times in six days, saying the evening and the morning, when he comes to the seventh day, there is no mention of evening or morning. And those little subtleties in the Word of God are things that cause me to go, hey. What's that about? And when you begin to look at what it's about, this is a day that has no evening or morning. Look at it. It's a day when God rested. It's a day that God blessed. It's a day that God sanctified or set apart. In other words, he said, hey, this day, this is mine. And, and so we're reading through the Bible in a year, and so we, we come to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 that, that, that says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. You might miss a lot of other things. Don't miss this one. Be not ignorant of this one thing. Okay, Peter, what is it? That a day is with the Lord... As a thousand years. And what if we were so literal in our approach to the scripture that we said, hey, 
I'm going to take that equation right there that he told me, make sure I don't, I'm not ignorant of that. I'm going to go plug that in back when days were first mentioned in the Bible. And so what we would come through is if a day is a thousand years, that there would be 6,000 years represented in the first six days in chapter 1, and we would come into chapter 2, and we would find that that seventh day is a thousand-year day that has no evening or morning. It is a day that God blessed. It is a day that he set apart unto himself, and he said, that's my day, the day of the Lord and I'm going to, on that day, I'm going to rest for a period of a thousand years. Hey, y'all, we can't even get past Genesis chapter 2 before he's already laying out the history of the world. Okay, th that, was, that was free. We got to pick up the pace, y'all. You're going to have to listen faster, okay? So, so, okay, so we see that, that cool thing in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we come to chapter 3, and he shows us in chapter 3 how the whole world gets jacked up by, by showing us our enemy and revealing to us how our first parents thrust the entire human race into sin. Then cruise over to chapter 4, and, and he shows us the, the deadly effects of sin in the world as Cain thumps his very own brother. And then we... Go over to chapter 6, and what he does is he sets the context for Noah's day, which is really important because Jesus is going to come along later and let us know that when, when he comes to this earth the second time, it's going to look a whole lot like it did in Noah's day. And the only passage that we have to go to to figure out Noah's day is Genesis chapter 6. So yeah, it's pretty important, but listen, right in between Cain and Abel in chapter 4 and Noah in chapter 6, God peels off some space to do something really exciting. He gives us a genealogy. And, and listen, it is the entire Chapter 32 verses. Listen, more verses than he spent on the six days of creation. There's one name after another. Now, why do you think God did that? Okay, because we believe that every word of God is pure and that God never does anything random in his book. We know that there's got to be a very good reason. And yeah... Okay, we can do the math in this genealogy and we can figure out that through the 10 men that are listed here, that the, there's actually a, a period of over 1,400 years that, that's covered between chapter 4 and chapter 6. And yeah, that's going to help us a lot in, in determining a biblical timeline. But why not just one verse that says, hey... There was a little better than a 1,400-year period between chapter 4 and chapter 6. We would all get that, right? So why all this to do and, and go through the list of these 10, 10 men? Okay, and, and the first thing I want to do is I, I want to I show you these 10 men 
and the meaning of their names. First of all is Adam, of course, and his name simply means man. Now, sharpen your pencil, because we got to run, okay? The second is Seth, and his name means appointed. Next is Enos, and his name means desperately wicked. Now listen, if you're pregnant right now and you're going to have a kid, do not name him Enos. <laughs> Number four is Kainan, and his name means possession. Fifth is Mahalalel, meaning praise of God. Am I going too fast? Well, sharpen that pencil. Praise of God. Number six is Jared, which means descent. And then number seven is Enoch, and his name means dedicated or train up. Eighth is the oldest man who ever lived, an old codger, but, and evidently, if you're sleeping, it's time to change pages. <laughs> an old codger named Methuselah, and his name means man of the sword. Man of the sword. Number nine is Lamech, which means powerful. And number ten is Noah, and his name means rest. All right. Now, I know that... Oh, yeah, you guys got to go back, don't you? You guys are quick, man. Okay, if I gave you the time to just look at the meaning of the names of those ten men, and we don't have the time right now to give you the time, but I think you'd figure this thing out. He's not just giving us a timeline of the 1,400 years of human history between Adam and Noah. Listen, through the, the names of these ten men, what's happening here is God is providing an outline of the entire course of the history of man for his 7,000 years on this planet. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, so the, the, the first man, Adam, meaning man, would represent creation, and, and specifically the creation of man. And, and God did that in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Th then next is Seth, meaning appointed, and that would represent the commission that God gave to man. Okay, after God creates the man in Genesis 1.26, in the remainder of verse 26 down through verse 28, listen now, God appoints man to have dominion over everything in the earth and the sea, and he appoints him or commissions him along with his bride to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth. That is his commission or what he was appointed by God to do. So Adam, God creates man, Seth, God commissions him. But number three, Enos, something happens. Man's heart 
Jeremiah 17, 9 becomes what, y'all? It becomes desperately wicked. And of course, Enos represents the fall, the fall of man. And man loses the image of God. And he loses the ability to reproduce sons of God. He, he now only has the ability to reproduce sons of Adam. And you see that in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 5. After the fall, Adam begat a son, listen, in his own likeness after his image, which of course at this time was a fallen image. And that's a problem. But the next name, Kainan, means possession. And God's showing us the direction the plan is going to go and how he'll fulfill it in Genesis chapter 17. What happens here is God enters into an unconditional covenant with a man by the name of Abram or Abraham. But God said that the covenant wasn't just with Abraham, but to his seed after him. Now, who was that seed that God was talking about? It was the nation of Israel, right? And listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, 8. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting, listen to the next word, possession. Listen, through Abraham, God calls out the nation of Israel and promises them a possession. And back in Genesis 17 and verse 6, God told Abraham, kings shall come out of thee. So check this out. God calls out the nation of Israel, and then you put into that the promise of a possession and a king into that thing, and you begin to understand what God is trying to get us to see. That nation is going to produce the king who will rule over the entire earth and all the Gentile nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to praise the God of Israel. And quite coincidentally, I'm sure the next name in the genealogy is Mahalaleel, meaning praise of God. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, y'all, listen, it is absolutely incredible. In the reign of Solomon, you know what's happening? The nation of Israel is the praise of God. And the kings and the king, queens of the Gentile nations are coming to bow before the king of Israel, the son of David, hello, and present gifts to him. And listen, it is the glory days of the nation of Israel as they are indeed the praise of God but no sooner are you out of 1st Kings chapter 10 before chapter 11 begins their what do you think begins their descent and again quite coincidentally I'm sure the next man in the genealogy Jared his name means descent and the nation of Israel begins a downward spiral that ultimately leads them to being taken into captivity in Babylon. And there's no more king in Israel. 
And once again, it looks like the plan of God isn't going to be fulfilled. And what happens after this is there's this long period of silence. God doesn't speak to anyone. God doesn't speak through anyone for almost 400 years when all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, a very dedicated man comes on the scene. A guy by the name of John the Baptist. And Jesus said of this man in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, among them that are born, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, a dedicated man. And he has some instruction for the nation of Israel, doesn't he? He has some training up to do, as it were. John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And, and what is he actually training up or preparing the people for? He's preparing them for the first coming of Christ. That's the next box. The, the coming of the man of the sword, which just happens to be the next name in the genealogy, Methuselah, meaning the man of the sword. And we know what the sword is, right? Ephesians 6.17 says, the sword of the spirit, which is the what? The word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, say it, was God. In John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh or became a man and dwelt among us. And listen, y'all, the man of the sword was here. And he came that first time, man, in meekness, full of grace and truth. But when he comes the next time at the second coming of Christ, it won't be like that at all. Mark 13, 26 says he'll come with great power and glory. Revelation 19, 15 says that the man of the sword will now use the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth to smite the nations of that time, the time of Christ's second coming. 2 Peter 1, 16 refers to it as the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus referred to it as the kingdom of God come with power. And the meaning of the name of the next man in the genealogy, Lamech, just happens to be powerful. And the second coming of Christ when Christ does come in power and smites the nations and puts his enemies under his feet, it'll bring in a time of, say it, y'all, a time of rest on the earth that we call the millennium when the kingdom has finally come and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign. Y'all supposed to stand up when somebody sings that. <laughs> and Jesus finally gets the glory that is due his name. And listen, not only will the earth be at rest for the first time since man sinned in the garden, 
God is going to be able to rest. All that just sitting in a little genealogy back in Genesis chapter 5 through the name of 10 guys. But other than that, I don't think dispensationalism is in the Bible. I don't know how you would have ever come through all of that, and if you didn't have a dispensational view of Scripture, I don't know how you'd ever make heads or tails of any of that. Why is that there, y'all? It's there, man, because God has got a plan, and he's going to work his plan. And let me just say this before we get, get off of this. Listen, some of y'all are going through financial difficulty. Some of you are going through physical pain. Some of you have got some kind of a, what the doctors are saying is a terminal illness. And we can get all stoked when we look at 10 names in a genealogy and says, yeah, God's got this. But when it comes down to us believing that God's got our situation and he's going to work his plan, and it's going to be okay, y'all. I'm not saying you're going to get healed. <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs> He's got it. <laughs> oh, let the names of ten men in a random genealogy scream out, God's got this, and that there is a dispensational approach to this book. You guys got the stomach for one more? Okay. This one's three times longer. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. So we see dispensationalism, at least in my simple brain, revealed in the Bible, first of all, through a seemingly random Old Testament genealogy, and then secondly tonight, I want you to see dispensationalism revealed in the Bible. Listen to this one now. Through the order of the books that bring us to the pinnacle of the Old Testament. Say what? <laughs> Through the order of the books of the Bible that bring us to the pinnacle of the Old Testament. Now, when I talk about the, you, you can see laid out on your sheet there. When I'm talking about the pinnacle, I'm talking about the, the top of the pyramid, top of the triangle. And the pinnacle of the Old Testament is the book of Proverbs. And as you can see, Listed is all the books that lead up to the book of Proverbs and then all the books that come after the book of Proverbs. And what's interesting about the book of Proverbs is that there are 19 books before it and there's 19 books after it. And again, so that puts Proverbs up there as the, the, the very central place, the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And, and when you begin to look at the actual content of the books of the Bible that take you from Genesis to the book of Proverbs, I got to tell you, y'all, it's pretty crazy what you discover. Because God gives to us, through the order of these books, the message of the entire Bible and the revelation of dispensationalism through the order of the books of the Bible. And, and I, now, now listen, if, for some of you, if you really want to get a, a handle on dispensationalism and 
where this is going and, and how God thinks. Do your best to, to just jot some things down and, and follow what God has revealed through the content in these books and the very order of these books. And obviously, we know that the first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis. And, and the book of Genesis, um, I think I'm going to need to take off my coat, y'all. I'm about to hot to death, if, if you don't mind. Um, Yeah, I could go all night now, y'all. Okay, so the, the book of Genesis. It, the book of Genesis obviously means beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything, okay? It's the beginning of the universe. It's the beginning of man. It's the be beginning of woman. It's the beginning of the family. But most importantly, it details for us the beginning of sin and death. And the book of beginnings, listen to this, ends with a man in a coffin in Egypt. Anybody know about Egypt in the Bible? Picture of sin and the world. And from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, listen, man is a slave to sin. And, and you know what's interesting? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, our beginning is just like that. We are born into this world spiritually dead, alienated from God, and therefore a slave to sin. The next book is the book of Exodus. It, it means brought out. And in Exodus, listen to it real quick, God's people, just like the book of Genesis ends, God's people were slaves in Egypt. Egypt at the time was the world power, and they were, the, the God's people were being held captive there by Pharaoh, Egypt's wicked ruler, and listen, day after day, God's people labored under the taskmaster's whip in Egypt, and God finally delivered them, or brought them out, Exodus, through the blood of the Passover lamb. And interestingly enough, the Bible teaches that all of us were slaves in Egypt. Again, a picture of sin in the, in the world. And we were being held captive there, not by Pharaoh, the wicked king, but by another wicked king by the name of Satan. And he is the, the wicked ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. And day after day, in our lost condition, we labored under the taskmaster of sin. And God finally delivered us. He brought us out. We experienced our exodus. How? Through the blood of the Passover lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Christ is our Passover. And then the next book of the Bible is the book of Leviticus. The, the book, y'all getting bored yet? Okay, we got a few more books to go. Y'all hang with it now. Leviticus, the book derives its name from the priestly tribe of Levi, and it means, listen to it, y'all, it means join to. 
the purpose of Israel's exodus, listen, wasn't just to deliver them from their bondage to Pharaoh. It wasn't just to deliver them from the daily torment of their taskmaster. Their deliverance and freedom from their oppression and oppressor was for the purpose of allowing them to be joined to a whole new kind of existence in a whole new land. On numerous occasions, God told them, I brought you out of Egypt, not as an end in itself, but I brought you out of Egypt to bring you in to Canaan. And oh my, listen, don't miss this. The purpose of our exodus wasn't just so that we could be brought out of the bondage to Satan. It was so that we could be joined to God. It wasn't just so we would be brought out of our sin, but so we could be joined to God. It wasn't just so we could be brought out of the kingdom of the darkness of this world system, but so we could be joined to the kingdom of his dear son so that we are in the world but mm -mm, we are not of it we've been joined to god next is the book of numbers it gets its name because of two numberings of god's people that take place in the book one in the beginning of the book the other, of course, at the, the end. And, and what's amazing about the two numberings, what, what it actually reveals is that over a period of 40 years, there was basically, listen, no growth. And, and you know what God's people were doing in that 40-year period? They were wandering in the wilderness of unbelief. The, the land of Canaan that had been promised to them was actually, according to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 2, it was only an 11-day journey. But listen, for 40 years, they failed to believe God. They failed to take God at his word. And God is trying to scream through us that it's possible. Listen, y'all. It is possible to be brought out of your sin and death and be joined to God and yet never really grow because we fail to believe God and we fail to take him at his word. We, we could trust him with our eternal destiny, but never really trust him day by day. And because of that, Never really getting where he wants us to get. Just been 10 and 20 and 30, even 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Never actually fulfill God's purpose in bringing us out. Next is the book of Deuteronomy. It means second law. God gave the law the first time in the book of Exodus, and it was pretty much this. Obey me because I'm God and because I said. It was connected to duty. But in the book of Deuteronomy, y'all, it is so beautiful. When God gives the law the second time, it's connected to a different word. This time, it's connected to love. 
And for the first time, though God has certainly always loved his people, but listen, this is the first time when God is actually talking about his love for his people and his desire for his people to love him. And God lets us know that he wants us to obey him. But he wants us to do it not because it's a ball and chain, not because it's a responsibility, not because it's our obligation or duty, not out of fear because of the consequences if we don't. He wants us to obey him because of, say it y'all, because of love. To fulfill the law of love. The next is the book of Joshua. Okay, so the first Five books of the Bible were the books of the law, and they were written by and they were connected to Moses. And Moses was a good man, y'all. But as good as, of a man as Moses was, and as hard as he tried to take God's people into Canaan, the land of promise, he just wasn't able to do it. But then comes the book of Joshua. And this is how it begins. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua. And you know what the name Joshua means? It means Jehovah is salvation. And you know what the name Jesus means? It means Jehovah is salvation salvation it's the same word joshua is the hebrew rendering of the word jesus is the greek rendering of the word but joshua is jesus in the old testament in fact acts chapter 7 verse 45 even refers to joshua as jesus but the whole point is this don't miss it the law is a good thing but it can never bring you into the life that God intended for you. Only Joshua, Jesus, can do that. And the book of Joshua is all about Joshua leading God's people into battle with a sword, defeating the enemies in the land, and taking possession of the inheritance God had promised them. And of course, he pictures for us the Lord Jesus Christ, and how that with his sword, the word of God, he defeats the enemies that we face on a daily basis, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he allows us to possess the fullness of our inheritance in Christ. And then next is the book of Judges. And there's a phrase, of course, that's repeated four times in the book of Judges. And there was no king in Israel. And every man, say it, did that which was right in his own eyes. And the book shows us what happens in the life of a believer when we refuse to allow our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule in us. And what happens over and over in this book is, listen now, God blesses his children. And in the midst of his blessing, you know what happens to them? They become complacent. And their complacency leads them into sin. And so God chastens them, and then they repent. 
And because they repent, God blesses them. And in the midst of God's blessing, they become complacent. And in their complacency, it leads them into sin. And here we go again. And what I just described is the life of most 21st century believers. And I don't know how many times that cycle is repeated in our lifetime, but I do know that the cycle is repeated seven times in the book of Judges. And interestingly enough, the seven cycles of sin just happen to perfectly line up with the seven periods of church history found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then we come to the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a, a lady in the Old Testament that you want to make sure that you're very familiar with because her story is unbelievably important. Here's her story. Listen, don't miss it now. Ruth is a Gentile from a cursed race. She is a, a Moabitess, and so she is totally separated from God and his promises, and she lives, as it's recorded in the book of Ruth, she lives during a time of famine. But one day, she hears good news from a far land that God had visited his people in Bethlehem and giving them bread. And upon hearing that news, she turns from her people, she turns from her land, she turns from her gods, and everything that she held dear, and she went to Bethlehem to partake of that bread. And when she got there, she just happens, it says, to go to work in the field of her Jewish kinsman redeemer, and he comes out to the field and takes one look at her and says, my, my, my. Whose damsel is this? And he falls head over heels in love with her, and he takes her out of his harvest field, and she becomes his bride. Nice story. But you know why we can't miss that story, y'all? Because that story is our story. Because like Ruth, we are all from a cursed race. We call it the human race. And we too are separated from God and his promises and that separation has left our souls completely famished. But one day, like Ruth, you know what happened to us, y'all? We heard good news from a far land that God had visited his people. The bread of life was born in Bethlehem. And upon hearing that good news, we turned from our people, we turned from the gods that we served and everything that we held dear so that we could partake of the bread of Bethlehem. And right now, he has us in his harvest field as we await the coming of our Jewish kinsman, Redeemer, to take us to the Father's house and consummate the marriage. Same thing happens in, in second, first and second Samuel. After we've been raptured out of the harvest field, the next two books of the Bible, what happens is first, listen now, 
Israel allows the wrong king to be crowned. And historically, of course, that was who? Saul. But then Saul is revealed for who he is, and then God's choice for Israel's king comes to the throne. And of course, that was David. But if you know how God reveals the events of the last days, listen, after the bride of Christ has been removed from the harvest field of this world, Israel once again is going to allow the wrong king to be crowned. And of course, that would be the Antichrist. But then he'll be revealed for who he is. And then God's choice of Israel's king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to the throne and he will sit on the throne of David. And then comes the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And what's interesting in these two sets of books is that God covers the same ground twice. Now, why would God, who never wastes space in his Bible, why would he do something like that? Basically, these books cover the downward spiral of the nation of Israel morally and spiritually, which finally culminated with the destruction of the temple and people being taken into captivity. And again, for some strange reason, God records that for us twice. And it's interesting, is it not, that in history... The destruction of Israel's temple happened not just once, but twice. Once in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and once in 70 AD under Titus. And then the next book of the Bible is the book of Ezra. Aren't you glad we're not going through all 66 like this? We're just getting to 19, y'all. Okay, hang on. The book of Ezra tells of the remnant of Jews coming back into the land following the declaration of a pagan king by the name of Cyrus who just happened to boast that his kingdom spanned the entire earth. And isn't it interesting that a remnant of Jews started heading back to the land of Israel at another time in history, and coincidentally enough, they were able to do it because a pagan British king who just happened to boast that the sun never sets on the British Empire, meaning, of course, that his kingdom spanned the entire earth, and he pronounced an edict that is called historically the Balfour Declaration that permitted the Jews to return to their homeland at the end of World War I. And then the next book of the Bible that follows is the book of Nehemiah. And as we just talked about, some of the, the, the Jews return to the homeland in the book of Ezra. But, but it's in the book of Nehemiah where the walls of the city of Jerusalem were established. 
In ancient times, it was said, a city without walls is no city at all. And here was the city of Jerusalem with no walls, completely exposed to the world. And under Nehemiah's leadership, the walls of Jerusalem were constructed once again, giving them a border and protection from her enemies. And once again, it's rather interesting that following the Balfour Declaration and the return of the Jews into the land that in 1948 the borders of modern-day Israel were established and Israel took its place once again in the family of nations and Jesus said, listen, you keep your eye on that fig tree because when it blossoms, that generation will not pass away until everything unfolds. And then the next book is the book of Esther. And you know what happens at the beginning of the book of Esther? Unbelievably intriguing, man. The sovereign king who ruled, listen to this, in those days invites princes and servants into his palace to partake of a feast that lasts for seven days. During which time, listen, he replaces his incredibly beautiful Gentile bride with a Jewish bride, and he pours out his grace and favor upon her. And yet while he does that, the villain in the story, a man who is referred to in the book of Esther as that wicked seeks to destroy the entire Jewish race. And on the very day that his devious plot was to be enacted, the tables were turned, his head was crushed, and the book ends with absolute jubilation and victory in the kingdom. And listen, y'all, you couldn't possibly tell the story of what will happen after the church of Jesus Christ has been raptured out, what's going to happen in those days, a phrase that is found 75 times in the Bible and always refers to those days of tribulation, the final seven days or the week of years in Daniel's prophecy, the sovereign king of the world is once again going to call the princes and servants that comprise his church to his palace for a feast that lasts for seven days or a week of years, during which time on the earth he will replace his beautiful Gentile bride, the church, with a Jewish queen, the nation of Israel, and he will pour out his grace and his favor upon her, fulfilling all of his promises to her. And while God is moving to do that, the Antichrist, the one that second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 refers to as that wicked 
will be seeking to destroy the nation of Israel. And on the very day his devious plot is about to be enacted on this planet, at the final battle of Armageddon, God will step in and turn the tables. The Antichrist's head will be crushed, and it will end just like the book of Esther ends with jubilation and victory in the kingdom from one end of the earth to the other. In the next book of the Bible is the book of Job. And much like in Esther, Job is a man who sits in tribulation for seven days. And throughout the whole ordeal, he has no idea that the tribulation he's enduring has been brought on to him by none other than Satan himself. And though Job didn't understand it, God did identify in the book of Job the source of his tribulation. Because you know what he talks about in the middle of the book? He talks about a beast that rises out of the sea. Actually, a dragon having seven heads, which is the same exact beast that John saw in Revelation chapter 13, having seven heads that arose out of the sea as Israel will sit in tribulation for seven days. And interestingly enough, do you know where Job is during this time of tribulation? He's in the land of Uz. You know where Uz is? It's in Edom. You know where Edom is? It's where Petra is. And you know what Petra is? It's the exact place that God is going to preserve the Jewish remnant in the last three and a half years or 42 months of the tribulation referred to biblically as the Great Tribulation. And I know that it would make me sound like an absolute lunatic to even mention the fact that this book that describes all of this, the book of Job, just happens to have 42 chapters. And so I won't even mention that. And then next is the book of Psalms. And check this out. The book that just happens to follow the tribulation of Job for seven days is the book of Psalms or Songs where the king is established on his throne in his kingdom and all the earth is singing. Psalm 66 in verse 4, speaking of Christ in his millennial kingdom, all the earth shall worship thee and sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Selah. Rest. Listen, that's why you have the book of songs in your Bible. Because when the king of kings takes up his throne, the earth is finally going to have something to sing about, y'all. And then the next book of the Bible that we've been waiting anxiously to get to that book that is at the very center of the Old Testament, the, the pinnacle. The zenith, the apex, the book of Proverbs. And you know what the book of Proverbs reveals? The wisdom by which the Lord Jesus Christ will rule in his millennial kingdom. And check this out. Do you know who wrote 
the Proverbs. Solomon, right? Listen carefully. If you ever take the notion, I'm going to lead the witness, but if you ever took the notion to just go to the Chronicles and go to the Kings and and you say, I'm just going to make a list of everything that it says about Solomon in these books. It's pretty crazy, y'all. Because if you took the time to do it, you know what you'd find out? That Solomon is the prince of peace, the beloved of Jehovah, the son of David, the son of Jehovah, the man of rest that sat on the throne of, over the kingdom of the Lord, a kingdom that was an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of peace and rest, a kingdom with no adversary present, and a kingdom where Israel's king is sought by all of the kings of the earth. That was just 10 things that I just described for you, describing Solomon. If we were playing the pyramid game, and I said, okay, Prince of Peace, Beloved of Jehovah, Son of David, Son of Jehovah, Man of Rest. Anybody here going to guess Solomon? What are you going to say? The Lord Jesus Christ, man. We're going to learn about dispensationalism this week, y'all. And what these guys are going to do in the mornings is they're going to take you to all of the precepts in the New Testament and other places and show you how this is laid out. I just wanted to be able to have some fun with you and just let you know that God has found some of the craziest supernatural ways imaginable to make sure that we understand there is an approach to the Bible that is biblical and the only one that can take it and make it all fit together and it does fit together is a dispensational approach I hope you'll be here in the morning hope you'll be here uh, tomorrow night let's pray together